0: We live in an age of endless information. We have access to more information today than at any point in human history. Got a question? You can search the world for answers. Need directions? Maps can lead you just about anywhere. Need to buy something? You can locate it, make your purchase, and have it shipped to you all in a few minutes. But access to all this information doesn't necessarily make us wiser, happier, or provide any deeper meaning in life. The wisest man who ever lived had everything he desired, but came to the conclusion that life without meaning is empty. But a life spent searching for the answers God provides is a life worth living. How is it that a Bible that was written thousands of years ago is still as helpful and as powerful for us today as it was at the time it was written. How is that possible? Well, part of the reason is because it is the Word of God, and it transcends time. It transcends generations and cultures, and it speaks into our life just like it spoke into the lives of those people at the time in which the different books were written. And part of the reason is because the Bible really focuses on human nature and human nature has not changed over centuries. We deal with the same problems and the same mistakes and the same weaknesses in 2019 that they dealt with 3,000 years ago. And it's part of the reason that we can read a book written 3,000 years ago, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, and gain so much from it. That's what we're doing these days. We're going through at least part of the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by a guy who lived 3,000 years ago. His name is Solomon, and he was the son of King David. He was a brilliant man. He was a wise man. And he asked some of the hardest life-penetrating questions that people still ask today. He lays out what he has discovered, but he doesn't give us the answer to all of it. He doesn't. He didn't know. It isn't until Jesus comes along that suddenly Jesus completes the thoughts of of Solomon 1,000 years before, and all all of a sudden, these very life, deep life questions become crystal clear for us. We're in a series entitled, Answers to Life's Biggest Questions. And that's what we've been doing. In fact, in chapter 1, Solomon introduced us to this question, what in the world is the meaning of life? Why are we here? What is this whole thing about life really about in the first place? He doesn't give us a full answer. Jesus completes the thought, and Jesus helps us make it crystal clear of why we're here. What is the purpose of our life? In chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, he says, how in the world can you have a happiness that, and a peace in your heart that is so deep, so powerful, a joy so strong that no matter what you face in life, no matter what tragedy you go through in life, it cannot rip that happiness out of your life. How can you have that kind of a happiness, that kind of a joy? And he lays it out and Jesus completes the thought. In the third chapter, Solomon says to us, how is it that you and I can make the most of our time? All of us have limited time on this planet. We have limited amount of years. So how do we use the, out, the, the years that we have in the most powerful way that we can? And we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. The, the, the logical then progression of thought is this next question, and it's simply this. What should now be the focus of my life. Since this is what the meaning of life is, since this is how you can, we can have a joy that the world cannot take from us, since this is how we can make the most of our time, how it, what is it then should I do in the, to be the most focused and have the best life possible that I can experience? And we've been going through that now for the last, that last week and today. Jesus was asked this very question in just different words. A man came to him and and asked him, uh, what is the greatest of all the commandments in the Bible? And Jesus in Matthew 22 says it this way, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, this is the first and greatest of the commandments. But the second one is just as important, to love your neighbor as yourself, Now that guy could have asked the question differently. He could have said, what should be, Jesus, the focus of my life to have the most meaningful life that I could have? And Jesus would have said exactly the same words. Jesus explained that the focus of our life, first of all, is to be vertical. It is to have a deeper relationship with God. And we talked about that last week as we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. But then Jesus says, the second part of our focus needs to be horizontal in relationships that we have in our life. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Jesus said that we are to love others just like we love ourselves. So what in the world does that mean? I think to get started in that, we've got to start with this idea We've got to have a better understanding of who God says that we are in Christ. We've got to have a better understanding of who we are in Christ. When Jesus talked about our life, he he said to us in the New Testament don't be inwardly focused, be outwardly focused. Don't just be about yourself, be about God and others. He even said, crucify self in your life, meaning crucify self-centeredness in your life. Let your life be not just about you, but be about God and be about other people. But in order to have a clear understanding of this, of what Jesus taught us, love others like you love yourself. We've got to have an understanding of, wait a minute, who really are we? How does God see us? Now that we are in Christ, now that we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, how does God see us? Because how God sees us is how we'll see ourselves. And how we see ourselves will determine how we treat other people. Are you following me? So here's the idea. How does God view us in Christ? I've given you a list. We're not going to expand on it. I just want to walk through it with you because I think it is life-shaking. The first is this, we are forgiven in Christ. No matter what you have done and how much you have done it, when you came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, God forgave you. Not because of your merit, but because of Christ's merit. God forgave you when you gave your heart and life to Jesus Christ. And then when we give our life to Christ, You and I have times in our lives in which we fail miserably. We have times in our life in which we sin. But the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we will confess our sins... Meaning, admit that our sins truly are sins. We acknowledge that what God said about them are true. If we will confess our sins before God, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are a people who have been forgiven by God. It's so crucial that you grab hold of it. And then the Bible says we are loved by God. Haven't you ever stopped at times in your life and said, I know myself, how in the world could God possibly love me? All my failures, all my warts, how in the world could God still love me yet he does? We are loved by God. We are forgiven in Christ. We are children of God. And now we are friends of God. The greatest being in all the universe has said to us, I don't want to just forgive you. I want to be a friend. I am a friend of God. God wants a personal relationship. God wants an intimate relationship with us. Here's the fifth one. We have been accepted by God, not on the basis of what we've done or haven't done, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ did for us already on the cross. I was born and raised in a pastor's family. I've been in church all my life. I've been in church before I was born. I've been in church so much, but it wasn't until my master's degree at seminary, that I understood this truth, that God accepts me already, not on the basis of my performance, not on the basis of what I do or don't do, but he accepts me on the basis of what Jesus Christ already did for me on the cross. The first time that I really came to understand that, Dr. Gray at Southwestern Seminary was teaching through a whole series of things, and this is one of them, and it was like a ton of bricks smacked me in the face. I could hardly believe it. I would worked so hard, tried so hard to get God to accept me. And I came to realize when God sees me, He didn't see me. He sees Christ in me. God sees the perfection of Christ in me instead of me. And that he has accepted me, not on the basis of me, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has already done for me. And now everything changed for me. I remember when all the classes were over that day, and I got in the seminary, at the seminary, by myself, and thought through what is... What are the ramifications of this? I got so excited because now I can do acts of love and kindness for God and others, and it is not to gain favor. It is because I already have favor. It's because I've already been accepted. The whole motive is now an expression of love to God for what he has given to me, not trying to get God to love me. Number six, we've been given strengths and talents and gifts from God. We have been chosen by God to be his children before the universe was even created. I know for some of you saying, what? I mean, how is that even possible? Because the God who created the universe is not bound by its laws. He's the one that created the laws. He is not bound by time. All of time stands in front of God. All at the same time, he can see everything from beginning to end at the same time. And God looked down through time and saw you and said, I choose you to be my child. The the wonder. Why did he do it? It wasn't because of anything you and I ever did. It is because of the love of God and the acceptance of God of our life. This is what the Bible teaches. I hope that this week sometime you'll go back and in your own personal Bible study, spend some time going through these verses. What I'm telling you is straight from the Word of God. Number eight, we've been set free from sin and the past. We are secure, number nine, in God's hands. Number ten, we are citizens of heaven and will live there forever with God. My citizenship is in heaven, and I am a citizen of heaven. I have rights in heaven, and it's not because of me. It is because of Christ in me. And here's the last thing. In the end, we win. Can I hear any amens about this? In the end, we win, folks. In the end, we win. We cannot be beaten because God cannot be beaten. Even physical death cannot stop us, for in Christ, Jesus said, we will never die. Our bodies will die, but the moment that our body dies, our soul, our spirit goes right into the presence of God, and we are us in heaven with Christ, us only perfected. Now, all these things, the Bible says, this is how God views you and views me. Why is it so important? It changes everything for us. Because you are forgiven, you can now forgive yourself. I don't know how many people have said to me, I can never forgive myself. Oh, yes, you can. Because God has forgiven you. And since God has forgiven you, you can forgive yourself. And because God has forgiven you and you can forgive yourself, you can forgive others no matter what they do. Because God loves you, you can love yourself. And because God loves you and you can love yourself, you can love others. And because God accepts you, you can accept yourself. And you can accept others in your life. Because you belong to God and you are protected by him, no weapon formed against you will prevail. You don't have to strike back. God will defend you. You look in the New Testament, and it is within this context that God says, when you come to understand who you are in Christ, you can give up your bitterness. You can give up your hatred. You can give up your anger. You can give up your rejection. And that is what Jesus is really talking about when Jesus says, I want you to love others just like you love yourself. It is based upon what Jesus has done for us. Now, it's within that context. Now, I want us to take a look at what Solomon teaches us in the book of Ecclesiastes and predominantly chapter 4, but not all in chapter 4. First, Solomon is saying to us, we need to build healthy relationships of mutual love and support. When we are looking horizontally in our life, if the focus of our life is looking external from us and we're looking horizontally at others, we need to learn how to build healthy relationships of mutual love and support. Look at what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. What is is this that Solomon is saying? Solomon is just being practical in the passage. He is saying the obvious. In order to make a point, when two people are in accord and both work hard on a project, it gets done faster and better than if one person worked alone. When you fall down and you can't get back up, having someone else there to help you back on your feet means everything at that moment. When you are in a frigid environment with not enough clothing to survive, you will survive if there is someone else there to huddle with you. When there is an enemy coming against you. That is more than you can handle, but someone else stands with you. You can overcome it. If you think about it, what Solomon is saying to us is that God intended from the very beginning for us to live in community, He never intended for you and I to be the Lone Ranger. He never intended for us to be separate from everybody else. He intended for us to live in community. And that community begins in family and and it expands to friends and other people. But for Christ followers, it also includes to live in community with other people who know and love Jesus. It's part of what we're doing here. It's part of coming to church on Sunday and we're gathering with other Christ followers and we're praising God together and we're, we're hearing the Word of God taught and we're in agreement about what God is saying in His Word. There is a sense of community that happens even in the big room. Even when we're, we're not just talking at each other to each other, there is still a sense of, a level of community that happens when we gather together. But it isn't the end of what God intended. God had also intended for us to live in community with a small group of Christ followers as well. We call those connect groups. That's why we have them. A small group of people who are there for us, who love us, who will encourage us, who will help us when we are down and we help them when we're down. And, and we are sharing life together it was intended God intended that we share life together with other believers in a sense of community I read a story a few weeks ago about a guy named Yuri Belenko Yuri Belenko is a skydiver how many of you have ever skydived would you raise your hand I just want to see where the crazy people are. I'm just, I'm just, I'm teasing you. Don't, don't take that personally. I'm just kidding. But I will tell you this: I will never, I will never jump out of a plane. Uh, uh-uh. I will never, I will never skydive. I will never ever skydive. Why? Because I don't want to die that way. That's why. Who? I don't want to drop 3,000 feet and go splat on the earth. I know I'm going to die, but I don't want to die that way. If you ever hear that I jumped out of a plane, it's a lie. (laughs) Somebody pushed me. I don't know who it was. But Yuri Belenko is a skydiver. And so he went skydiving with some friends. And so what happened is they jumped out of the plane first. And then the plane uh, curved around, came back, and then he jumped out. The others had had already jumped. So they were already on the ground. And by the time the plane got back around, then he jumped. He was the last person out of the plane. Well, there he is floating, not really, dropping is what he's actually doing. There he is dropping his arms and legs out, and he's just enjoying himself. And he says, well, you know, it's time to pull the ripcord for the parachute to come out. He pulls the ripcord, and nothing happens. So this is why I'm never going to go skydiving, because this is what will happen to me, and I know it. He pulls the ripcord and nothing happens. Well, not to worry. We have sort of a backup kind of thing going on. I don't know how it works. But he pulled another ripcord and nothing happened. And now he knows we got problems now. And he is dropping and he sees his friends down there on the ground. And he begins to yell at them. I would be yelling like you have never heard. And he begins yelling at them. They look up. They realize he's in trouble. So they grab a huge canvas, and they rush to the spot in which he'll splat. I mean, he'll drop, <laughs> and they, they're trying to figure out where is he going to land, and they, get, and they do it right. They get it right to the place, and they've, they've got this canvas, and they're all pulling on this canvas as hard as they can pull, and he hits that canvas, and when he hits the canvas, it brings everybody in. You can imagine. They're all falling in, but Belenko Lives. You think I'm making this up. I am not making this up. The guy lives. And in fact, he gets all kinds of bruises and cuts, but he does not break one bone. I don't know how that's possible. And Yuri Belenko is alive today because of friends who at the moment that he most needed them were there. And this is what God intends for Christian community to be. When you take what Solomon says about friends and what Jesus says about friends, you bring them together. Here's what you have. First of all, true friends are loyal. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend is always loyal and a brother is born in time of need. A friend stays loyal. Second of all, true friends are honest with each other. You tell each other the truth, even if it hurts. True friends are honest with each other. Third, true friends treat each other as equals. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 15, 15. Four, true friends make each other better people. Iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. Number five, true friends willingly sacrifice to meet the needs of the other. Jesus talks about this in John 15, 13. And number six, true friends forgive each other. True friends forgive each other. Love prospers when a fault is forgiven. But dwelling on it separates close friends. A few years ago, there were nine miners who were trapped for three days, 240 feet underground in a mine shaft. This is why I'm never going to be a skydiver, and I'm never going to be a miner. I'm not going to be either one of these people. And for three days, they were trapped 240 feet underground because of some collapse of some passageway out, and they were rescued three days later. Now, there was water down there. There was actually sort of an underground stream right where they were, and this water was clean and fresh, and they could drink it, no problem. But it really was a problem because the water temperature of that water in that cavity was 59 degrees. And that might not mean anything to us, but what it really meant to them was that that water would slowly but surely kill them through uh, hypothermia. It was going to slowly but surely kill them. They came to realize it. This water that we're drinking that's keeping us alive is also going to kill us, slowly but surely. These guys got out of the mine safe and sound, but one of them gave sort of an interview, and in the interview he made this statement. When one would get cold, the other eight would huddle around that person and warm that person and when another got cold the favor was returned everybody had strong moments and and weak moments every everyone anytime one guy got down the rest would encourage him it was always a team effort it is the only way we survived and it's one of the greatest explanations of what christian fellowship is supposed to be what Christian community is supposed to be? One person is down and the others lift him up. One person is cold, I mean just spiritually, and the others help warm that person up spiritually. One person's in need, the other one comes to the rescue. This is the community that the church is meant to be. What Solomon is saying is that all of us need community. We cannot live this life just on our own. We need people who believe in us, who are there for us, who help us, who pick us up, who warm us up. We need people who will be there for us. God intended for us to live in Christian community. The first thing that we must do is build healthy relationships of mutual love and support. And my question to you is are you doing that actively? Are you doing that actively in this church? Or is it just come to the big room? There is a sense of camaraderie when we come here. But is that the sum total of it all? Because if it isn't, you're really missing out on something. You need others, a small group of people, who will be there for you. Second of all, refuse to use others as a means to a selfish end. Now, I'm just going with what Solomon is teaching in chapter 4. And he brings up this topic, which was a surprise to me. He says, refuse to use others as a means to a selfish end. And notice how he puts it. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4 to 6. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now, Solomon is using an exaggeration. Solomon is using an exaggeration to depict three different kinds of people. The first kind of person is lazy. He says there are lazy people on the earth and they will end up getting what they deserve. That's exactly what he's saying. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5 says, if a person who can work refuses to work and unwilling to work, do not help them. Did you know that it's there? If a person can help themselves but won't help themselves, is unwilling to work, do not help them. Step back from them. Let them get sufficiently hungry so that now they become motivated by that hunger to begin pulling their own weight. And then when they pull their own weight and they are not able to take care of their needs, now step in and help them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. One kind of person that Solomon is talking about is a person who's lazy and is unwilling to help himself and ruins their own life. But there's a second kind of person and it is the person who is motivated in their life by jealousy and by envy. Envy is wanting what somebody else has. They have it, you don't, you want it. And jealousy is having something somebody else doesn't have and you're afraid they'll take it away from you. Solomon is saying there's a whole lot of what people do in this life that is actually a response of jealousy and envy of others. I came across this article, personneltoday.com. It's a publication for HR directors. And there was an article in the publication entitled Professional Jealousy Grips the Nation. And here's, it's an article about a study that was done. And here's the bottom line of the study. Almost 9 out of 10 office workers suffer from professional envy of colleagues they perceive to have a more glamorous or better paying job. There's another study that I found. It's a study of, a survey of 1,500 office workers. And it found out that over two-thirds, which is close to the number of the first study, over two-thirds feel jealousy and envy toward friends and co-workers because of what somebody else has they don't have. And Solomon is saying basically the same thing. Be very careful that you are not responding to the motivation of envy and jealousy. Why? Because these first two kinds of people, the person who's lazy, you take care of me, I don't want to do it myself, and the person who is motivated by envy and jealousy, these two kinds of people are the people that tend to use others as a means to their own selfish end. And that's what Solomon's saying. There's a third kind of person that Solomon says exists, and it's a person who has found contentment in what they already have. He says, better is one handful with tranquility. He is talking about a different, a third kind of person. And here is the bottom line that he's saying, be the person who lives your life in balance. Be competitive and be hardworking, but refuse to let your heart turn into envy or jealousy. Refuse to use others for your own selfish ends. Be a person of character, commitment, and peace. It's part of what genuine community is about. Here's a third thing that Solomon says. I'm just going with what Solomon says in, the, in chapter 4. Solomon says, come to the aid of others who are being treated unjustly. In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 16 and 17, the verses right before chapter 4, he says this, and I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. And I thought in my heart, God is going to bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. There will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. And then, just a couple of verses later, Ecclesiastes 4 verse 1, and again I looked and I saw the oppression. And I looked and I saw the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors And they have no comforter. And Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14, there is something else righteous men who get what the wicked deserve, and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. Now, what Solomon is saying with these three passages of scripture is no matter if it was 3,000 years ago or it's 2019 and every generation in between, there are people in our world who are being unjustly treated. There are people who are being oppressed. And a day is coming when the persons who oppress others will stand before a holy and righteous God and he will deal with them in a righteous way. There was a Supreme Court justice in 1881, his name was Horace Gray, and this is a picture of Horace Gray, and um, this guy, as I I looked up his his bio, he was a fierce opponent of slavery, and even his enemies said that he was an honest and upright man. His enemy said that. That he was an honest and an upright man. Now before he became a chief, a beca- he wasn't chief justice. Before he became a Supreme Court justice, he was also a, a judge in the lower courts. And one day, in those low, one of the levels of lower court that he was in in his career, he had in front of him a guy who was totally guilty. But a guy that he was going to have to release because of a technical issue with the law. And it tore him up on the inside. In open court, he said this to that guy who was guilty. He said to him, I know you are guilty. And you know it. And remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge on judgment day. And there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to law. But that's true about all of us. And it is also true about those who seem to have the power and who oppress. One day for them as well. They will stand before a holy God and they will give an account of their life. But between now and when that happens, between now and when that happens for those who are oppressed, Did you hear what Solomon said? And they were oppressed. And no one came to their defense. No one stood with them. When I read the New Testament... When I read the words of God and when of Christ, and when I see the actions of Christ, here's what I see I see that if there's anybody that will stand with the oppressed, it must be the people of God, it must be Christ followers who, when they see that there is someone being oppressed, will stand with them and for them. And I want to say to every child that is in this room, whether you are a, a, a grade school kid or you're, you're in high school, I want to challenge you when you see someone in your school who is being bullied, that you are not a part of it. You refuse to be a part of the bullying, and you, re, you refuse to be a part of the mockery, and you don't even step back and say, well, I, I have nothing to do with this, but that you make a decision. If that person's being bullied, I, bullied I'm going to stand with that person. They need somebody to stand with them. They need someone to care about them. And as a Christ follower, be that person. And wherever it is, we see it. Wherever it is, we cannot wash our hands of it. We cannot act like it does not happen. It is not happening around me. We have to stand with that person that is in need. Somebody's got to stand with them. And it ought to be Christ followers who do it. Now I want to make this statement you got to be careful to not prematurely rush to judgment. It's a qualifier, isn't it? I've never had to make it ever before, but I have to make it now. Make sure that you hear both sides, Proverbs 18, 13. Make sure you hear both sides before you decide who's right and who's wrong. thoughtful about this moment. We live in a super emotionally charged environment in which it is so difficult to know what is actually happening and what is not. And a good example of that, this happened a few weeks ago. A group of teenage boys, Catholic boys, were standing at a bus stop. They had come to Washington with their school to march for the right to, to life and they were just waiting the bus stop, ready to the buses to come. The buses hadn't gotten there yet. And all of a sudden, something happens in front of them, and they don't know what to do with it. But it appears to be one thing. And because of two minutes of video, every single news station in America, it was tweeted all over the place. Politicians made their stand and... Hollywood stars made their stand, and these boys were terrible, horrible human beings. They ought to be beaten, some of them said. Ought to be punched, some of them said. And within an hour to two hours, what happened is is that when people actually watched the whole video, they came to realize we got the whole thing wrong. These guys were not the oppressors, these teenage boys, they weren't the oppressors, they were the oppressed. But we live in this day in which so it's so easy to act too quickly and to lash out emotionally and to be wrong. And here's what I want to say to you. We, you and I, are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And as Christ followers, we've got to somehow remove ourselves from the hatred on both sides and from the emotions in our culture that both political parties are whipping up against each other. And we've got to be willing to stop and hear each other and to take each other at face value and not be manipulated in this culture. So here's what I want to say to you, to us. Stand with those who are being abused. Stand with them. Do not wash your hands and walk away. Stand with those who are being abused. But be careful not to unwittingly overreact to a situation you don't really understand yet. What should now be? how I use my life there must be a vertical relationship with God that I pour my life into knowing him better and there must be a horizontal relationship in our life in where I learn how to live in community with other Christ followers and we stand together and we love each other and we're there for each other and we help each other let's pray Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and we need it. It is so powerful. It is so helpful. And we're grateful for it. And, oh God, you see, we live in such a strange time and a hurtful time. We live in a time in which it seems as though the only thing that matters is anger and even hatred. And, oh God, may that not be true about those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Father, may we stand with those who are being oppressed and help them. May we learn how to live in community with each other the way you wanted us to in the big room here but also in small group in which we learn how to be there for each other. May we learn to use our life in such a way that we're not actually trying to use people in a negative way to fulfill our own ends but we are truly loving other people. Help us to be the people of God you've called us out to be. Now, Father, I pray for those in this room that have never given their heart to Christ, that do not know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, that this would be the day of their salvation, that they would make that decision to receive Jesus into their heart. And for those who are not members of this church but know you and love you, Father, if there is a sense in their heart that this feels this place feels like home, I pray that you'd give them the opportunity today to, to join this church if that's what you're leading them to do. Father, move in our hearts to recommit ourselves to align our hearts with the Word of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.